Amen. Good morning. Glad that you're here this morning. If you and I don't know each other, my name is Matthew Perez. I'm one of the pastors here at Life Church. I'm one of the elders. And it's always a joy and privilege to bring the Word of God. Uh, Pastor James is out this week, as is Aaron, and, and we joke that they gave the keys to the car to the young kids, because I'm older than James, and I like to tease them that I got hair. Um, so we're going to open the Word, and uh, we'll be all right. I, I told people, um, we've had a service before without them. God will be okay. Joshua 7 is where we're going to be this morning. If you have a Bible or a tablet, we want to encourage you to do that. I'll be in the ESV. Um, if you're kind of unfamiliar with the Bible, Joshua's in the Old Testament. Uh, when I say Joshua 7, 7 is the chapter. That's that big number. We'll be in there this morning. We're also going to turn later on in the service to Romans chapter 8. So if you even want to mark your Bible for that, Romans will be in the New Testament. And again, 8 being that big number that you'll see will be there a little bit later in the service. So we're glad that you're here, whether you are a longtime member, first-time attender, somewhere in between you call yourself a Christian or don't really know what this is all about and are trying to understand what it's about or curious about what it's about, we're glad that you're here as we open the Word of God together. Again, we'll be in Joshua 7 this morning. So may, maybe you've had these moments, you know, where things were, were going really well and then it wasn't, right? Like one minute, like life is great and the next minute it's like a dumpster fire, and you're not quite sure what even happened. We, we had one of these last fall, my family and I. We took the day and drove out to the coast to the beach for the day because we love the beach. And this is the great thing about not living in the Midwest anymore. I can go to the beach or the mountains in a couple of hours and have a good time. So my family and I were out at the beach. We're having a great time. My wife and I are there. My two youngest kids were there. We're, we're playing in the water. We're playing on the beach. We're even flying kites because you still got to do that, man, even when you're older, right? It's because it's kind of cool. I uh, had a, a great day. We're coming home now. It's late at night, and, and things are going well. We're laughing in the car. We're playing a game of guess who I am. We're, we're jacking around, having a good time. We stop off at a, at a gas station. We fill the tank. We get snacks. I mean, life is good. We pull out of the gas station. We drive down the road for a few miles. We're laughing, and then, like, the dumpster fire began. My front tire blew out, which wouldn't be that big a deal, except it's late at night in the middle of nowhere, and my spare had a flat. And so what started out as this wonderful beach day ended up in this five-alarm dumpster fire where we didn't get home till the next day, and it was weeks before we could even talk about it without me like really feeling frustrated. I can laugh about it now, but it was one of those moments where one minute things are great, and the next minute they're not. Maybe you've had those moments. Joshua 7 feels like that, if you haven't been with us. In Joshua 6, God's people Israel have gone into the promised land. They go to Jericho, their first stop. They march around the city. The walls come tumbling down. God has given them victory. Life is good. They're excited. And Joshua 7 opens up. They're heading to Ai, this small little podunk town that they're supposed to just roll all over. And life is going good until they get to Ai, and they thoroughly get their butts kicked. One minute life was good for the Israelites, and the next minute it's a five-alarm dumpster fire. Maybe you've been there, right? For us, it was a blown tire. Nobody was hurt. Everybody was fine. For the Israelites, that's not the case, right? It's much more serious. Sin, we're going to be told in Joshua 7, has entered the camp, and because of it, people are going to get hurt, and some of them are going to die in Joshua 7. Now, if you haven't been with us, let's just kind of recap where we're at in Joshua and how we got here in our series, right? Joshua is the account of God's people going into the promised land, God's covenant 
promised land that was given all the way back with Abraham. It's coming. His word is being fulfilled. And they have crossed the Jordan River, and they've gone into the promised land, and their first stop was Jericho. That was Joshua 6, and God brought them victory. And as I said, they're now on to Ai, this small little town that is supposed to be really uh, an easy victory, a no-brainer. And um, they roll in there, and because of their disobedience and their sin, they get thoroughly trounced. And that's where we're at this morning, Joshua 7. Let's take a look. I'm actually going to start and just read. You don't have to turn there. You can if you like. Joshua 6, 16, 17, 18, and 19, because it's going to set up com- context for Joshua 1. In Joshua 6, 16 through 19, it's right before they go into Jericho. And they're supposed to walk around, and this is what it says in verse 16. At the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be lived, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. Verse 18, but you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take away any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. That's context. Let's pick it up in chapter 7, verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things that we just read about. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai, and they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three hundred, two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men, and they chased them before the gate as far as Shebram and struck them at the descent, and their hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan, O Lord. What can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And that when what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They've transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them in their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord, God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by household, and the household the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near the tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerhites was taken. 
And he brought near the clan of the Zerites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and two hundred shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing fifty shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they're hidden in the earth inside of my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel, and they laid down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the cloak, and the bar of gold, and his sons, and daughters, and his oxen, and donkeys, and sheep, and his tent, and all that he had, and they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned him with fire, and stoned them with stones, and they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. The Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of the place is called the Valley of Acre. Let's pray. Holy Father, we pray now as we spend time in your text that you would give us eyes to see your text and ears to hear and hearts that are willing to be transformed by your word. Lord, may your word do a mighty deed in your people, shaping us for your glory. We pray now as we spend time in it that um, our eyes would be open and our ears attentive. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so a lot going on in this chapter. I want to focus in on a question that Joshua asked. As Joshua was wallowing in self-pity, you're going to see it at the verse, end of verse 9. He says, what will you do for your great name? God, now that this is going on, now that we're utterly humiliated, we don't know what's next, what are you going to do for your great name? And God is going to show us three things that he does in this chapter for his great name. Here's the first one. He's going to punish sin accordingly. God, what are you going to do for your great name? He's going to punish sin accordingly. As we think about this passage, I want us to consider how this passage, if you've been with us, fits into the context of chapter 6 and the end of chapter 5. If you haven't, let's kind of recap. At the end of chapter 5, Israel is on the outskirts of Jericho. They're getting ready to attack the land as Joshua is met by the commander of the Lord's army in Joshua chapter 5, verses 13, 14, and 15. And so here's this man with his sword drawn, and Joshua looks at him and says, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? Whose side are you on? Right, we're about to go to battle. Here's this man with a sword, and we just want to know whose side are you on. And his answer is a fair question, right? But his answer is neither. He says, no. Are you for us or for our adversaries? He says, no. I'm the commander of the Lord's army. What he wants him to know is in this response Whose team are you on? And he says, neither. And I think James, Pastor James, did a good job pointing out last week that the question wasn't whose side is God on. The question really is, are you on God's side? And chapter 6 and 7 play that out. In chapter 6, the city of Jericho is clearly not on God's side. They've had a history of sin that James pointed out last week that God said, we're going to punish and in the midst of that, we saw God's grace. This Canaanite woman, Rahab, who exhibited faith in God in chapter 2, was spared the destruction and shown grace by God. We get to chapter 7, 
and we have a problem. Look at verse 1. Major victory in chapter 6. They should be riding high and excited. Chapter 7, verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. Achan has seen some things that he has liked, and he has decided that they belong to him and not God. Really, stealing is bad, but stealing from God, you've got to be some kind of idiot, right? Achan took some of the devoted things. In verse 21, we're told it's a, a cloak from Shinar. It's about six pounds of silver, about a half pound of gold. And Achan says, look, man, in verse 21, I saw them. And I liked them, I coveted them, and I took them. And really the verbiage that he uses is very similar to the verbiage that Eve uses in the Garden of Eden when she looks at the fruit. She saw it and wanted it, so she took. That's sin. I saw something that I wanted more than God. I saw something that I thought would satisfy me, that would satisfy the thirst of my heart more than God. That sin at its root every time. I saw it. It looked appealing to me. Whether it's something that I did or something that didn't belong to me, Maybe it was my deceitful words. Maybe it was looking at someone lustfully. Maybe it was disobeying my parents. Whatever it is, what I saw in that moment looked more appealing to me than the commands of God. And I wanted that to satisfy my heart more than God. That's Achan. And it's described in verse 1 as Israel's broken faith. Broken faith from God because he's desired this more than God. And that term is really, really powerful. They broke faith. It's the same term that's used in Numbers 5 to describe an unfaithful spouse. Let that set in for a moment. That sin is being described in such egregious terms that it's on par with a broken relationship by a spouse being unfaithful to their partner. That's how it's described in its deep betrayal of sin in verse 1. God's commands, a breaking of a deep trust, a breaking of a relationship is set on par with the unfaithfulness of a spouse. So Achan, we're being told, is acting like an unfaithful spouse toward God. And now sin is in the camp. And, and Achan in this chapter is like the foil of Rahab in chapter 6. If you haven't been with us, I encourage you to go back and read that sometime this week, right? Rahab was a faithful Canaanite woman. She's treated like an Israelite by her faith. She is spared as sinful Canaan is, or Jericho is being destroyed. And in chapter 7, Achan is like the exact opposite of Rahab. Here's a faithless Israelite man who's being treated like a Canaanite, devoted to destruction because of his disobedience, and God is going to deal with sin. It doesn't matter nationality. It doesn't matter what camp you're in. He says, are you for us 
or for our enemies in the beginning or end of chapter 5. And the commander of the Lord's army says, no, I'm not on either side. I'm on God's side. And the question is, are you on God's side? Because when you're not, that sin will be dealt with accordingly. Sin is in the camp. And Israel heads up to Ai. It should have been an easy victory. Right? They look around, they're like, look man, there ain't many people. We got like 600,000 fighting men. Just send a couple thousand. This isn't even that big a deal. So they head up. And they get whooped. 36 men die. I know that doesn't seem like a lot in a war. But if you were with us in chapter 6, that's 36 more people than died than they did in chapter 6. When nobody died. And the men are running from their enemy, and we're told in chapter 7 that their hearts are melting. It's the same term that was used to describe the Canaanite kings when the Israelites crossed the Jordan River. Their hearts melted with fear. It's the same phrase that Rahab used in Joshua 2 when she said, hey, everybody knows you guys are coming here in Jericho, and our hearts are melting with fear. And now it's God's people whose hearts are melting with fear. What happened to life with this victorious God? Well, verse 11 tells us, right? We were already privy to it in verse 1. In verse 10 and 11, God says, listen, um, sin is in the camp. Joshua 5, are you for us or for our adversaries? No. The question is, are you on God's side? Those who are not, who are in sin, are dealt with according to God. So let's think about a few things about sin for a moment. Right? Sin is a violation of God's command. Verse 11, uh, Israel has sinned. They've transgressed my covenant that I commanded. They've taken some of the devoted things. They've stolen and lied, put them among their own belongings. That sin is first and foremost against God. His commandments have been violated. In every sin, the chief party offended is God, right? And the second thing we need to think about with sin is sin isn't just what I do. It also entails what I value, right? When I set my affections on something other than God, even if that thing is good, when that item begins to satisfy my heart, the thirst of my heart, when I begin to center my life around that thing and find it more beautiful than God, I'm in sin. Even if that beautiful thing I'm chasing, there's nothing evil about The sin is my affections, my heart that belong to God have now been stolen and devoted to another thing. For Achan, his eye was caught by silver and gold and this cloak from Shinar. And really, let's be honest, sometimes what captures our hearts, our eyes, and moves us isn't awful, right? We're maybe working a little bit extra for that promotion that we think will satisfy us. We're working extra hard for that home or that vacation home that we think is going to just bring us ultimate satisfaction. There's nothing wrong with wanting to move up and work or have a nice house, but when my life begins to orient around it as if this is what's going to bring me ultimate joy, we have a problem. We're in sin. We begin to love the wrong things more than God, even good things wrongly more than God. We're coveting. We're acting as if these will satisfy the thirsts of our heart. And this is sin. 
Habakkuk 1.13 tells us that God's eyes are too pure to see evil. Habakkuk understands something that Scripture reveals throughout God's Word. He will not look approvingly on sin. In chapter 6 and chapter 7, play that out for us here in Joshua. The final reality we've got to think about sin is this. Sin has consequences that affect more than just the one committing the sin, right? When I sin, I don't live in a vacuum. I don't sin in a vacuum. Achan sins, and what happens? 36 people die. That's 36 husbands not coming home. That's 36 dads not coming home to their children to provide because another man sinned. On top of that, you go to the end of this chapter, and Achan's whole family, his donkey, his cattle, his sheep, his, his Buick, his tent, right? You throw it all in there. It's all in the mix being destroyed, People who had nothing to do with it. Sin has consequences beyond self. And we have to keep that in mind. What is God going to do for his great name? He's going to punish sin accordingly. But thankfully, this isn't the final word. Sin never has the final word. Because while he's going to punish sin accordingly, what will God do for his great name? He's going to provide grace undeservedly. Look at verses 13 through 15 with me. God says, get up, consecrate the people, and say to them, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst. O Israel, you cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, before you, therefore you shall be brought near tribe by tribe, and the tribe that the Lord takes you by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, the house of the Lord takes shall come near by and by man, and the one who's taken the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he's transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Israel's defeated in Ai. Joshua laments in verses 6 through 9. Oh gosh, why did you bring us here? He should have just left us on the other side of the Jordan where we were fine. And his, his crying and wallowing, I'm going to call it that, feels a lot like Israel if you spent any time in the Old Testament. Oh, gosh, why did you bring us out of Egypt to die? Oh, why don't we have any food? Now it's the next, like, moan fest, right? Oh, why do we come over the Jordan? Like, this plays out in Numbers 11, Numbers 14, Numbers 20. And then he asked this question in the middle of his self-pity. Oh, God, what are you going to do for your great name? He's going to provide grace. Consecrate yourselves, for this is what's going to happen tomorrow. If you're with us a few weeks ago and I was speaking, I was in Joshua chapter 3, where God stops up the Jordan River so they can cross. Before they cross, maybe you remember these words in Joshua 3, verse 5. He says, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord is going to do wonders. He's going to stop up the Jordan. This time, he says, consecrate yourselves. Because God is going to act again. This time he isn't stopping up the Jordan. He's punishing sin. Now I've read this account numerous times in my life. Many times. It wasn't until a few weeks ago that the light bulb finally clicked for me. When I finally saw the beautiful picture of God's grace in this chapter. I, I missed it every time. Right? I, 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 maybe I'm dense. And maybe you already see it, or maybe you're like, Matt, what are you talking about? Because this looks like, wow, a pretty vengeful, awful God. Consecrate yourselves for their devoted things in camp. You've stolen from God. Those things belong to God. You've violated his commands. But look at verse 14 again. Look at verse 14. In the morning, 
you're going to be brought near tribe by tribe, right? In the morning, those who took the devoted things will be separated out and be devoted for punishment. Catch that. In the morning, God says to Joshua, tell the people tomorrow morning, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to punish sin. Tomorrow morning, Achan sinned, and this punishment is happening in the morning. Achan has all night to repent. All night, Achan has to say, you know what? Maybe what I did was wrong. God, in his grace, provides Achan the opportunity to repent. And and I've thought about this reality over the past few weeks. I found myself wondering, like, Achan, what are you waiting for? Like, Achan, you idiot. You really think you're going to get away with this? Like, really, as as you're reading, it's like, Achan, this God provided manna, food that fell supernaturally from heaven every day of your life for the past 30 plus years until you crossed the Jordan River. And oh, by the way, Achan, you crossed the Jordan River because this God made the whole river stop. And oh, by the way, Achan, after you crossed the Jordan River, you walked around a giant wall for seven days and you yelled at it and it fell down. That's the God you have. You really think, Achan, you're going to get away with this? Are you that dumb, Achan? And then humility strikes in. Because I wonder how many times God's thought that about me. Man, what are you waiting for? You really think God doesn't see that? Repent. You really think you might be able to escape God's eye? This God who provided manna from heaven, this God who stopped at the Jordan, this God who provided his son to die on the cross, you really think he doesn't see what's going on in your heart? And so when I finally saw it, I spent probably the first couple of days like, Aiken, you're an idiot. And then spend like the next week in self-pity like, Matt, you're the bigger idiot. Repent. What are we waiting for? Are you for us or for our adversaries? That's the question in chapter 5 that opens up this whole section in 6 and 7. If you have a physical Bible, I want to tell you to, to keep it marked here and turn to Romans 8. If you have your phone, just you know, scroll a little bit. In Romans 8.31, I'm told God is for me. I've got to tell you, personally, I take great comfort in that verse. Personally, I take great comfort in Romans chapter 8 in general. In Romans 8.31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, I've got to tell you, that sounds good. God is for me. But he's for me because we have to think about Romans 8.31 in the context of Romans 8 altogether. In Romans 8, chapter 1, this is what he says. Or at chapter 8, verse 1, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation means punishment by God, right? There is no punishment by God, in Romans 8, 1, for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means there is condemnation, punishment by God, for those who are not in Christ. Christ Jesus. God is for me when I'm resting firmly in his grace in the finished work of Jesus Christ. 
This God who punishes sin in Joshua 6 and Joshua 7 is the same God who's going to punish sin in Romans 8. It's not a different God. How do I know that God is for me? He's for me when I'm resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ, Romans 8.1. God will punish sin, but he provides grace for me to come to him, to be forgiven, to be cleansed, not because I earned it, not because I was born into a home that went to church every Sunday, not because I go to church now every Sunday, not because I think I have good morality. He's for me only because of the finished work of Jesus Christ in Romans 8 verse 1. What moves me from the wrath of God in which my sin is going to deserve to be punished just like Achan to being God is for me is the finished work of Jesus Christ. Look at Romans 8 verse 2 and 3. He goes on, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Paul tells us that we're set free in Christ from sin and death because of what Christ did that our sinful flesh cannot do. Where we, like Achan, break faith with God, we violate his commands by what we say and what we think and what we do. We're told in verse 4 that Christ walks faithfully where we walked faithlessly and frees us from sin. And then he goes on in verses 7, 8, and 9. The mind is set on the flesh. It's hostile to God. When we're only thinking about flesh, we're hostile. We're enemies with God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So if I'm in the flesh, I'm not walking with Christ, I'm in the flesh, and God isn't for me. You, however, are not in the flesh but in spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is is life because of righteousness. Catch what he's saying. Is God for me? Are you for us or our enemies? No, I'm for the Lord. That's what the command of the Lord's army says. Is God for you or against you? God is for us, Romans 8.31, when we are resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He provides the grace like he does to Achan. We have to ask ourselves like Achan, will we walk faithfully in that grace? Or are we going to walk in the flesh? And Romans 8 tells us there's a different outcome for those two individuals. Like Achan who fails to repent, there's a different outcome for him versus Rahab who confesses who this God is. What will God do for his great name? We'll go back to Joshua 7. He's going to punish sin accordingly, but he is going to provide grace undeservedly And he's going to do this to proclaim his glory for his name's sake. This is all done for the glory of God. So Achan is found out. Big surprise. Joshua says to Achan in verse 19 of chapter 7 of Joshua, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me what you've done. Don't hide it from me. Don't mistake yourself. This is not a confession. 
This is the confession like when your parents caught you, and then you're like, hey, Dad, this is what I did. And he's like, you idiot, I already knew that. You're not confessing, you're being punished now. Maybe I'm the only one who did that, you didn't, I don't know. Um, this is not a confession by Aiken. This is a like, hey, let me tell you what you already know, and here it is. But notice what Joshua says, give glory to the Lord and confess what you have done. Be truthful about what you've done. In verse 26, after they punish him according to what God has said, they raise over him a great heap of stones that remain to this day. They pile up stones. The sin of Achan is dealt with and stones are set up in a memorial to remember this day, to remember this moment, to remember God's glory is upheld and he will not allow sin into his midst. Again, if you've spent time in our series with us, this may sound a lot like Joshua 4, right? Joshua 3 and 4, the Israelites cross the Jordan. Consecrate yourselves tomorrow. God's going to do a great thing, just like here. Consecrate yourselves tomorrow. God's going to act. They cross the Jordan, and he says, hey, on your way through, pick up some stones. You get to the other side, set up a memorial. So years from now, you can point back and say, this is who our God is. This is what he's like. This is what your God is about. And now here they are. Consecrate yourselves. In the morning, God is going to move. He's going to punish sin accordingly. Right? He gave grace. Achan doesn't want to take advantage of that grace. And now stones are set up to say, let's remember who this God is and how his name was upheld by the way sin was dealt with. He is the God who stops up the Jordan. He is the God who provides grace to Rahab and us. He is the God who will punish sin accordingly. Why does God do this? Why does he punish sin? Why does he provide grace? God will talk about this a few hundred years later. A few hundred years later, if you were to fast forward, Israel, God's people, who are now in the promised land in Joshua 7, find themselves not in the promised land in the book of Ezekiel. In the book of Ezekiel, God's people have been punished because they've been disobeying God's commands and God wants to punish them to bring them back to him and they are exiled out of the land and they're now in captivity in Babylon, right? And they're being punished for their sin and God scatters them because of their persistent sin and God has poured out his wrath in Ezekiel 36 for their persistent sin. They profane God's name and God punished their sin just like he did Achan. But sin never has the final word. If you take notes, I'd encourage you, like, write down Romans 8, Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 37. Read them this week. Let me give you just a snapshot of Ezekiel 36. God says, I sent you into exile because of your disobedience. And now I'm going to bring you back. And somebody says in Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 22, it'll be on the screen. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. Sounds like Romans 8. And I will give you a new heart 
and a new spirit and I will put within you and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. That sounds like Romans 8 again. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Why does God move to punish sin and why does he move to provide grace? He tells us here in verses 22 and 23, I do it for the sake of my holy name so that my glory is on full display. That sin is punished because I will not let it into my presence, but that upholds my glory. But what equally upholds my glory is the grace that I provide to sinners who don't deserve it. And I do this for my great name. Brothers and sisters, we don't gather to make much of ourselves. We, we don't gather to make much of us. We gather to make much of God and proclaim his great name to the nations like Ezekiel tells us here in Ezekiel 36. What is God going to do for his great name? He's going to punish sin accordingly and provide grace undeservedly. Okay, so let's land this plane. How do I respond to this? First off, let me say this. Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? And he is for us in Christ. If you're here today and you don't consider yourself a Christian, you don't know what it means to be a Christian, you're trying to figure this stuff out, I want to say I'm glad you're here thinking through this with us. But Joshua 6 and 7 shows us the reality of how God's going to respond to sin. And there's no distinction between Israel and Gentile in Joshua 6 and 7. There's no distinction between people who walk into a church building and who don't walk into a church building. God is for you when and only when you are resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Paul, who writes Romans, will also write letters to the Corinthian church and he implores them to be reconciled to God, to take the relationship they have with God in which it is broken by their sin and to have it reconciled, fixed, by the finished work of Jesus Christ and finding faith there. And So if you're here today, I would implore you, be reconciled to God. And if you don't know what that means, I'd be happy to talk with you later. Stop by the Connect Center to talk with somebody, to set up an appointment with one of the pastors or elders. Talk with your friend or family member who brought you. What does it mean to be reconciled to God? Let's walk through it together. Second, you may be here, and you consider yourself a Christian, but maybe like Achan, you've broken faith, and you are coveting something other than God. You are looking to something to fulfill your heart where God should be. Maybe you're not chasing gold and silver, but you're treasuring in your heart something more deeply than God. It could be something awful, like an addiction or pornography. It could be something that's not awful, like work, your child's education, athletic achievements, a new home, the need for a spouse or a child, as if these things will suddenly bring you total satisfaction. Your heart wasn't designed to find satisfaction in those things. Our hearts are restless, God, until they find rest in you. If that's you, that you're valuing these things more deeply than God, repent. Repent. Our God is the God of grace. And in Christ, he forgives us. And in Christ, he can help us fight the poles of this flesh. 
finally, if you're here, you're thinking, okay, great, repent, but how do I fight against this? Because if I tell you, just stop coveting, that sounds pretty stupid. How do I stop coveting? Just stop. Thanks, Pastor. You're an idiot. How do I stop coveting? Three quick things on the screen behind us as we close out. How do I fight against covetousness so that our lives can glorify his name? One, store up his word in your heart. Psalm 119.11, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might sin against you. Church value number two that we have here is we believe God's word is powerful. How do I fight against finding other things more glorious than God? I begin by storing up his word in my heart to see how glorious God is. So start by diving into his word more. Second, you need to learn to find satisfaction in Christ, Philippians 3, 7, and 8. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For the sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Church value number one, we will treasure Christ above all things. Learn in Scripture how to make Christ your ultimate treasure. See the glorious God that he is and spend time in Scripture, not so that God becomes more beautiful, but so that you see more clearly the beauty that he is. And here's the third thing that you can do. Keep an eye on people who treasure Christ, Philippians 3.17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the examples you have in us. Look, you are surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ. We're all on a journey at different levels, struggling at different levels, thriving at different levels. And as you look around and you see brothers and sisters in Christ who are walking faith with God, Man, watch those people. Talk to those people. This is why we continue to push community here at Life Church. Not so we can high five each other to staff me and say, our life groups are up to this many people. It's because we know, as Emery said earlier, like there's there's not Lone Ranger Christians. You can't do this thing on your own, right? And we understand that one of the best ways to fight against covetousness is to walk with people who hold us accountable and see people who are valuing and treasuring Christ and say, How do I walk in that way? so that when God calls us home, we can be found worthy and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we can gather together, and we thank you for our opportunity to spend time in your word, making much of you. Lord, you are the God that punishes sin. In, in 2022, we don't like to talk about that, Lord. We confess in 2022 in America, we like to pretend that you just approvingly nod and wink at sin like it's no big deal and it's a lie straight from hell. Lord, may Joshua 6 and 7 help us see that reality. You are a God whose eyes are too pure to look upon evil. But God, you are also a God of enormous grace. You are the God who loved us enough to send his son who was faithful where we could not be. God, you are the God who's loved us enough to, while we were at our ugliest, draw us to you, to cleanse us, to place a new heart in us, through and only through the finished work of Christ. And so, Lord, we praise you and thank you that your name is glorified in the way that sin is dealt with. We also praise and thank you that your name is glorified in the so undeservedly lavish grace you pour out on us. May we find shelter there. May we give glory to you as we point back to the cross and this grace that you provide. I pray this in your son's name. Amen.